Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz singer Stacy Ken. She is a singer in the mold of the greats with a legion of fans worldwide, a host of honors and awards, including a Grammy nomination, album sales that are in the excess of two million, gold, double gold, and platinum selling albums that have reached a series of number one chart positions. She's had a very, very interesting ride, and she talked about all of that along with her latest album, the CD, I Know, I Dream, The Orchestral Sessions. It got five stars in Downbeat, won the Album of the Year in the vocal category at the 2017 Jazz Japan Awards, and she is always captivating the crowds as a performer. So get to know her and dig this interview, my friends. Thanks for taking a minute out for Neon Jazz. It's a pleasure. So I want to go ahead and dive right into your album. I know I dream the orchestral sessions and I've really had a chance to wrap my head around it and it's such a magnanimous melding of both the jazz and the classical world. So I want to know with you, what was kind of your vision for this and how you want the listener to feel after they consume this album? Yeah, I really like this question, and I, I love talking about this because this was a project that was a long time coming and, and in the works uh, before we got into the studio. You know, it's not every day that you're going to make an album with, you know, 58 other musicians. To put all that time into it is really worthwhile to get it exactly as you want. And also, you know, recording with an orchestra it's kind of like the construction of a building. You wouldn't uh, just say to your architect, okay, go. Because when those arrangements start to be written out you know, and crafted, there's so much work that goes into so many parts and uh, so many specifics in the harmony that you really want to make sure that you're going down the right path before you set it in stone, you know. And I think that Jim's in my vision and when I talk about Jim, it's Jim Tomlinson, who's the sax player in my band and also my husband and my producer and the songwriter. We had a very specific vision, and that is to say that um, with orchestral albums, the ones that are the most successful to us in our minds, and I'm not talking about uh, you know sales and financial success, I'm talking about musical success, of course, uh, are the ones where you really get a great marriage between the vocalist, the artist, and the orchestrations and the arrangements because there's so much you can do with an orchestra and in fact the danger is that you can do too much um, because there's so much possibility to write and overwrite and the kind of singer that I am I'm a very intimate song singer and storyteller and we didn't want the story to get lost and so the people that we looked to uh, who really were our inspirations happened to come from Brazil. People like João Gilberto and Tom Jobim. You know, when you see these guys uh, up on stage, João often with just his guitar or João with a full orchestra, he's still João Gilberto very much at the center. The sensibility doesn't change. The way in which he delivers doesn't change. He just happens to be embellished by this vast orchestra. Same thing with Jobim. There's so much minimalism. There's so much space. And yet there's so much going on at the same time. And so those were really our inspirations. 
what's interesting about this, and, and you talked about, you know, where jazz meets classical, the people that I'm talking about, Jobim primarily as a, as a songwriter and arranger, um, who is really one of my greatest heroes of them all, is also downwind of that classical world. His influences come from the French Impressionism, from uh, Ravel and Debussy and Villa-Lobos and Chopin. And, you know, I come from that world as well. So I already felt like we crossed paths uh, along this path several times. And so it was very easy to look to them and think that I didn't have to be overpowered as the singer just because I happened to have 58 people. When I say overpowered, I mean, you know, just over-embellished. And that can happen. This wasn't a swooping, sweeping, dramatic uh, Hollywood score. This was supposed to be a world that the listener could enter into. When you asked me the question about, uh, when you added that, that tag about how I wanted people to feel, I wanted people to be able to sit down and listen to this record and feel as if they were listening to the, the kind of record that I've made for them before or the kind of experience they have when they come to see us live before, which is to say that it can be still very intimate, still very much that story and storytelling aspect at the center, and yet with all of this color around me. Uh, one, I know this is a very long answer, but one more thing I'll add. To sing already is such a visual experience. I know that sounds kind of abstract and wishy-washy, but I, I find it so visual, and I think I tend to gravitate towards material that is very visual, that is very cinematic. There's a lot of great metaphor and beautiful images uh, written by my poets. Um, you know, whether it be a, a Vinicius de Marais lyric or a Jobim lyric or, or Ishiguro lyric from a Tomlinson song. And to sing with orchestra is all the more visual. So it's, um, I was choosing songs and orchestrations that gave it that very visual experience. Well, I think it's, I, I haven't never, I, haven't, I don't think I've heard it described in that way, but it is visual. It's like reading a book. You're constructing this world based on words, and the words that you use are very poetic, so it all makes t total sense. I'm so glad you say that, because that is what it's like for me. You know, I'm a big cinema lover, and one of the things I talk about with Jim and with Kazuo Shigoro, who writes the lyrics for the for the Tomlinson and Shigoro songs, is, and and. Ish is also a novelist and a screenwriter. I'm literally transported into this world, and I want to take people with me into this world. And so I opened the album, well, that's with a Jobim song, and I knew, even before we started to record, I knew this was going to be the opener, as long as it came out well, because you don't know what's going to happen in the studio, was Double Rainbow, because it, it's so evocative, and it has the words... Listen, the rain is falling on the roses, which is already so playful because, yeah. of course, we're listening to the rain falling on the roses. And it's such an invitation. And I thought that was just, those were the perfect words to open out into this world. And then, you know, we could take this journey to all of these wonderful places with, this, with these songs that are, yeah, I can't think of a better word for it than uh, cinematic. And so when we talk to... Jim and I sat down with Tommy Lawrence, going back to your first part of the question. Uh, Tommy Lawrence, Jim did some of the arrangements, and then Tommy Lawrence did the majority of them. It was very important that we sit down and we talk a long time and cited examples and really understood that we were on the same page. Because as I referred to the architect earlier, once you start to write all of that down, it's hard to go backwards, you know. So you need to know that you're in the right place from the beginning. And we were very careful to make sure that we 
really understood uh, where that we where we wanted to go together, and um, sent him different examples of the, of the things that we do like, the things that we don't think work. That was very useful, and that's why it took so long to make, so that we could really make sure we were ready to just you know press go and go forth. The one thing about this album is you got a five-star review from Downbeat. You've won awards. You've been recognized. I know that's not the end game, but that has to validate a lot. Oh, sure. I'm not going to sit here and say that it's not wonderful. You know, a few months ago, I got the call that this one Jazz Japan Jazz Vocal Album of the Year uh, and the Downbeat review came in. That Those happened around the same time, I think, um, early in, in the winter. I was thrilled because this was a, a dream come true album to make. So, no, of course it feels great to win those, uh, to, to have that recognition. And yet, it is so far from what drives you. And I, I can tell you honestly that when I was starting out, and before I had the career that I have now, and I was sitting in a cafe on Wednesdays and Fridays with a guitarist singing in a corner of... Um, a place called Cafe Bohème in London when I was just getting started and Ronnie Scott hadn't hired me yet and I hadn't been to any other countries yet. A hand on heart, I was so exhilarated to be able to make music and share music and maybe 17 people would come in the cafe and they would sit, you know, we were regulars and they were regulars and they would come and sit and listen to us play and play and play. It was thoroughly inspiring. It was what I wanted to do and I've never forgotten what it is that I want to do. I love to tell stories. I love to share music. There is nothing more beautiful than that. And particularly, you know, the world <laughs> goes through these waves of crazy times, doesn't it? You just want to make people feel good, feel better. Uh, forget whatever's going on. I don't mean, you know, that it has to be some big, drastic, terrible thing going on, but, you know, the traffic jam, the broken toaster, or, or something more drastic than that, to make people feel good because it makes me feel so good. I knew as a kid that when I entered into a world in music, when I would come home after school and close the door to my bedroom and put on my music and just enter into that world, and it made me feel so much, um, I knew that I wanted to do the same thing uh, for other people. And so that is really the most gratifying part. And, you know, so you, you set out on a, on a journey to make a record and you hope when you launch it into the world, um, that it does just that. The other thing is you don't know where it's going. You don't know, once you launch it and it's out in the world, you don't know how it affects people's lives. And um, I'll tell you one little anecdote that I just sticks with me. There are so many. I meet so many beautiful people, you know, at signings after the shows and we talk or they'll be resourceful and they'll find us on the internet and tell me their personal stories. But there's one that was so beautiful recently and a guy... It's actually not so recent. I don't know why I just said that. It feels like it was recent, but it wasn't. The guy wrote me afterwards. I did meet him after the show, but he wrote me this letter on Facebook. And he said that his daughter had wanted to come to the show, and she was too little, so he didn't bring her. He had asked me for a request, and I had played the request. And the point was he got home. And his little girl had fallen asleep on the couch. I guess the babysitter didn't put her into bed. He picked her up to put her into bed, and she woke up just enough. She said to her father, did she sing it? And he said yes. And she smiled and fell back asleep on his shoulder, and then he put her to bed. The story is so beautiful because 
here's a guy who's got this beautiful relationship with this little girl and they share this love of one of my songs and she wanted me to sing it for him that night at a show that she wasn't allowed to come to and then I am in a privileged position to find out you know they shared this moment at 11 p.m on his way home from the show and the fact that I get to have these little glimmers into people's lives that they share this with me uh, shows just how reciprocal it is. You know, I'm on stage and I'm, I'm giving something to the people who come, but they give something back to me. It's, it's a very shared experience, and I can't think of anything nicer to do than that. That's a great story. I love it. <laughs> so speaking of being a little girl, you grew up on the East Coast. So tell me how you got into music, more specifically jazz, and what singers or jazz musicians really got you going in the beginning? When I was a kid, I gravitated towards music, and I can't really answer the question as to why, because who knows why one kid sits down in front of a television and starts to, you know, draw what he sees, because he's just got a, a, a you know, an eye-to-brain-to-fingers connection. You know, for me, it was music. We would go to the movies as a family, and I would come home, and I would pick out melodies from the incidental music uh, on the piano and because it was just stuck in my head um, my mom played the piano and I classical piano and so I grew up sitting by her side listening to her play a lot of Chopin uh, again the French music that I was referring to the impressionists and, and, and this this kind of thing is, is music I grew up with and then I was tuned into the radio all the time uh, there was the radio show that had the Frank Sinatra hour on I don't know what day of the week um, but I would listen to that I watched a lot of musicals so I grew up with Barbara Streisand and Mitzi Gaynor and Fred Astaire and then I think everything integrated and I found my way into jazz but not by direct line. I had older brothers and sisters, so I was exposed to more American hippie music, you know, so I grew up on Cross Pistols, Nash and Young, and I really wanted to be like my older siblings, because everybody does, and they were quite a bit older than I was, so I thought they were very cool, and I was listening to their music, and Cat Stevens, and Joni Mitchell, and all of this, but, you know, mixed in with the musicals, and then a turning point happened for me, which was that a friend was playing the Getz Gilberto record. So I was at a friend's house, and he put on Stan Getz and Joel Gilberto, the famous, the, the classic record. This is so many way, people's way into music um, and into this field. And uh, I heard that, and I just went, what is that? I loved it. I didn't get it, but I heard this voice and guitar of Joel Gilberto, and I was completely hooked. I think there was something in that music that really spoke to me uh, without me being able to describe it at the time but you know I was an optimistic and sort of happy sad little kid I was melancholic and optimistic all at the same time I can't explain why I just was but this music without me understanding it really grabbed me and um, my dad lived on uh, 66th street just a couple of blocks away from Tower Records. And Tower in those days was just fast. It was just, it was such a candy store, you know, for a music lover. And I would go in there, and um, they had a section of Brazilian music. And because I knew João Gilberto's name, it led me to buying other things. So I 
was picking up things like Schwarzberto and Tom Jobim, and it led me to so many other Brazilians along the way, along with my Carole King records and Ella Fitzgerald records. And I don't think I was a kid with the kind of mind or curiosity to care or ask what the genre was. I just don't think I was terribly concerned with genre. I think I just heard what I loved and it spoke to me and that was it. So I was listening to all this music for years and years, way before I knew that I would become a singer. You know, I, I went to college and I, I got a degree in, in literature. So I had no idea that I was going to sing, but I think I was quote unquote studying music all along because I just listened to so much music. Um, I was devouring it. And so I think I was working behind the scenes uh, unconsciously for all those years. The one thing that's very key in your development and your biography lineage is that you go to London, you fall in love with your future husband, lots of things happen in London. You had mentioned being in those coffee shops with 17 people there, but that was really a springboard for you. Talk to me about how important that London chapter in your life was. Yeah, that was hugely important. What's so great about the London chapter, and I think that that changed not just my my musical path, but also my view in life in general. When you're young and you're a kid just graduating from college and anything can happen, anything can become a springboard for something else that leads you onto a, a, another unknown path. And I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, I wasn't planning on staying in London. I was just, I happened to be there for a year after I had studied in Germany, I was working on my German because I was a language and literature student. And so I was studying German, Italian, French, Portuguese. I, I had all this language study behind me. And that was what was going to lead me towards my master's. And I went to visit some friends in England and I needed a break because I had done four years of undergrad. I had already started working towards my master's. I was doing every summer, spending every summer in between my college years at Middlebury in Vermont studying at the language courses. I guess what I'm trying to paint the picture of is that I was uh, I was a little burnt out and I needed a break and I went to London really just to take a time out. And I didn't, you know, I was in my early 20s and I didn't quite know what I was doing yet. The reason that is so key is because I ended up auditioning on a course at the Guildhall School of Music, which was just a one-year postgrad course. That's a very safe thing to do. It was a one-year course. I thought, well, I love music. They're probably not going to take me anyway. I hadn't studied music in any sort of um, official capacity. I hadn't studied it at college. I was uh, in another field altogether. But I auditioned and I got in. And uh, this was all so impetuous. And I got this visa to stay as a student. And word of mouth started to spread about me because when I was at the college as a student, People often call the colleges and ask kids to come in and, and play for their private parties. So I was getting party invitations to come and sing um, with other students at uh, the Natural History Museum or British Telecom Tower, all these kinds of things. And I got this job in this cafe where they hired me twice a week. I kept getting these calls asking me to do things, and I didn't think I was staying. I didn't think I was staying because I figured, you know, I came from this particular background and I thought I would go back and do my studies and get a job somewhere in, in the academics. You know, I didn't quite know and it needs so long ago I don't really remember, but you know, somewhere in in the academic field. And so when I started to sing and word of mouth started to spread about me more and more, 
And a lot of things started to happen. I made a demo at the college, and so I sent that to three people, and all three of those people I sent it to led to something else. Um, one was the Richard the Third film with Ian McKellen. One was to uh, Humphrey Littleton, who played me on the radio and said, watch out for this girl. Um, and it was just a demo. I wasn't really expecting anything. And one was to a guy uh, who has since died, but he was at Polygram Records at the time. Then I got introduced to Candid Records, and they signed me for a, a, a record deal. So, you know, I, I don't think I was terribly hungry in terms of my career. I was just, I did a few little things, and it kept building. And that's what left me with this philosophy that, you know, you don't know who you're going to meet any time in your life who's going to change your life. Jim obviously changed my life because I met him at the college and we got married right after college. Um, but I had no plans on doing this and it kept happening to me. So I became kind of this fatalist, you know, I thought, well, maybe I'm just meant to be on this path. So those London years were very important to me. And I also, because I was getting all these jobs sort of around town I was getting to play with repertoire I was getting to know myself as a singer and be playful and I think those were really important so you know I, I really love the the pace of my own career if I can put it that way that nothing huge happened to me all at once you know it's not like I was on television and then boom you know the next day they said come and be a star I, I think I would have not dealt with that well uh, I think this thing gradually just grew and grew and grew until you know then I got a tour offer to come to Sweden this guy was in the audience in a, in a little London club and asked me to come and tour for three weeks in Sweden he was a promoter and then Ronnie Scott hired me for the opening sets and then they said it, it, it was kind of one of those lines you know you know kid a lot of people come and see you we're putting you in the main slot and then it just kept growing until suddenly I was in, you know, 20 countries and then 50 countries. And I, I don't think I ever really, I had never really planned it. It just, it grew at a great pace. And I think that allowed me to grow along the way. And that's been very important for me. Speaking of growth, one of the biggest growth spurts that you can have either as a performer or a listener or a fan is the shows you see live. Early on in your life, what jazz show did you see that really moved you? I saw Art Blakey when I was in Germany, and that was amazing. He was towards the end of his career and life, uh, and I was just a kid. I found that tremendously exciting. Uh, and when I was in New York, when I was at college, uh, I saw so many good things. What I want to ask you now is, generically, why do you love jazz? You know, it's interesting that you asked me about why do I love jazz. I, it's a vast category. And I talked about being a kid and not really paying too much attention to category. And I think even to this day, I don't pay that much attention to category. I love music. I love music every single day of my life. It is in my head and it is in my life day and night. And even when I'm off tour, um, it is such a huge part of my life. I wake up. And I go into the kitchen, and I, Jim's making coffee, and I pick up my guitar, and he picks up his flute, and we start playing, and we talk about it, and we put it on. Um, and I, it's hard for me to answer and say that it's jazz 
per se. And I realized that, you know, this is a jazz show and we're going to talk about jazz. And I think that I, I do gravitate towards um, this genre more than others because quite simply, I love the harmony. You know, the, the harmony speaks to be more than the harmony of a pop song. You know, there, there are so many complexities to it. Uh, there are extensions in it that just in accord that uh, exhilarated me as a kid and still do today. And I wouldn't have been able to explain what was going on in the chord um, before. Uh, and yet I knew that it uh, reached me in a way that maybe other harmonies didn't. And I love the group. You know, I grew up listening to uh, Ella singing with Duke Ellington at the Cote d'Azur. And it had such a great groove to it that it just moved me. But I don't... This is where I have to stop and say, you know, it's not exclusively jazz because this is the genre that I sing. But I also, you know, wake up and I go right to my Schubert. Um, that's who I was listening to this morning. So that's why he, um, he comes to mind. So Brazilian music moves me and all, all kinds of genres move me. And I spend a lot of time in my life listening to classical music and attending classical music concerts. And so it's not necessarily jazz per se that inspires me. I think that there's a lot of different kinds of music that feeds into the kind of music that I sing, which I think is what makes it interesting along the way, because we're all coming from these different lineages. Uh, I'm really inspired by the music of, I watch a lot of Satyajit Ray films, and I love Satyajit Ray's music. Uh, in those films, a lot of the music is his own composition, or Ravi Shankar is playing. That is a music that really speaks to me. And I think that it, it probably feeds into the kind of music that I play. You know, here's an example that people might understand even more. You know, if you take a, a director, a film director like Martin Scorsese, who can make these very intense and violent movies, um, Martin Scorsese's love of film, if you, if you hear him in interview, there's so much variety in what has inspired him along the way. I heard him specifically speaking about uh, his love of Powell and Pressburger, um, the, the British... Uh, team who made things like The Red Shoes and uh, I Know Where I'm Going. Great, great films from the 40s. And um, he talks about these being some of his favorite films. And you might not see that direct lineage inside his movies because they're so different in their texture and their sensibility. And yet, it can't help but inspire him. So I am inspired by so much different kinds of music that will fuel the kind of music that I sing, even though it's not a, a, a direct uh, line from one to the other. So let me ask you this. This is my final question for you, and I want to know this. Everyone has a version or an interpretation of you, your family, your friends, and your fans, but you know yourself best. So tell me, who do you think you are? I think I'm very much connected to that little girl that I described earlier. You know, I grew up feeling pretty melancholic but optimistic and I think I am still that person and so I think that I found the right job career path and uh, vocation because I'm a person who loves to share and share beautiful things and so to be on stage and say listen to this it's not even really up you know I'm the medium but it's not so much look at me, it's listen to this that I think is so key. I think I'm a person who likes to make people feel better. I like to make people feel good and feel better. And I think that that has always been at the center of who I am. If one of my friends wasn't feeling well at school, 
I have these vivid memories of, of sitting with them at lunch. And, you know, we were a, a, a group of caring little girls. I remember just whisper singing into one of their ears, kind of making her feel better when she didn't feel so well. I think that those kind of things that were who I was then are still who I am today. But you're right. We're different versions to different people um, on different occasions for different reasons. And yeah. That's what makes life interesting. Without a doubt, without a doubt. Stacy, thank you for taking some time to talk about your world of music. I really appreciate it. It's really a pleasure. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Japan, New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the globe, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Stacy for her time, her music, and story. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com, and for everything Neon Jazz all the time, Go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.